everybody. Welcome. This is a very special episode of STC Pod. I'm going to call it STC Talks because I'm sitting down and I'm talking with a single person and it happens to be Father's Day. So welcome to the very special STC Pod Father's Day edition. You're going to hear from myself talking to my father and we're going to hear about all his adventures he had coming up, growing up, entering the army, starting a family, moving everyone far away, Uh, creating a life for himself, the trials, the tribulations, everything's going to be there. I thought it was a pretty interesting interview. Um, I hope you guys can uh, give it a chance. Uh, Apologies for my microphone during this interview was complete uh, no good, trash, but I tried to tweak it the best we could and uh, this is what we come up with. So sit down, give it a listen, see what you think. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, Again, happy Father's Day. Enjoy your day. Thanks to all the fathers out there. And moving on, here is Bill Sr. with Bill Jr. Well, total different. The world economy was good. The, uh, the war had just ended, so that meant that everything that they used up was almost, you know, extinct. So these bigger companies were hiring massive labor groups and they go in and they were uh, working diligently to get the job done, and they did. And the economy spun high because there was nothing to drag it down. Now, people say when the economy is low, uh, that's the time to start a war because of all the mass production. Yeah. Yeah. What were you doing in the 50s? In the 50s? I was still in school. Um, But I didn't stay in school. I went to grade 8. And I did okay with grade eight, passed into grade nine, and uh, I couldn't get out of grade nine. Spent two years in grade nine. Well, what were, how did grade school go? Why was that fine? Grade school went great. Where were, where are we talking? In Windsor? In Windsor. Yeah, grade, grade school was good. I had. How big was your school? Was it, you were right in the city, weren't you? Yep. So yeah. was this one of these big schools? Or? We talking about grade school? Yeah. No, it was a. Uh, was it, it was it a single room school? No, no, like no. The church? No, and no, no. Everyone had slates. No, no, I wasn't born in the 30s. Oh, you had paper. <laughs> it was, it was a little Catholic school. Had two floors. Did up to grade eight. And then from there. Like, I had no problem because everything was good. I didn't have to worry about anything. Was it, uh, what kind of Catholic school was it? Did you have, like, was this when the the nuns were teaching? No, the nuns weren't teaching, but they were the head of the school. And the principals and vice principals were nuns. And for discipline, they had 
a couple men teachers. What do you mean for discipline? Well, when kids would act up and everything, you know, they had to be disciplined so they don't do it again. And so uh, they uh, decided that a good thing would be to have a man teacher there and get control. So that worked out. Well, how did they take control? What was the discipline action of the day in grade school? You get a smack on the uh, on your knuckles, or you get the strap from the principal. The the mythological strap. You saw the strap. Oh, I wore it. <laughs> what was the strap? <laughs> it was a razor strap. Okay, that you'd sharpen a razor on. Yeah. So thin, maybe two inches wide. Oh, a little wider than that, probably three and a half. Leather? Leather. And the teachers weren't allowed to give you the strap. So if you needed discipline, you were sent up to the principal's office, and she would administer the strap. And you, you, that happened to you? A few times. And did the parents know about this? Was there a phone oh, call home? Oh, yes. Yes, they always knew, but my parents, they, they would never hit us. But they were fine with the kids being Oh, you bet. School. Yeah, oh. because it helped them too. All parents were fine with this? I've never a... heard of an occasion when someone wasn't. No. When, when I was in grade school, there was the threat of the strap. It was more like a, a legend. Never, I don't know if anyone actually got it but there was always talk about it. Oh no in our day we got it. Number one is we used to uh, walk to school and there was a railroad crossing it had about six different tracks and if you were to go over top the railroad tracks you could get to school and cut off about 10 minutes of your walk instead of walking all the way around. And uh, that was not a no-no. And then we used to throw stones at the railroad uh, flashing things, you know, the green, the red. And that give you a strap. And they would determine how many slaps you got. Slaps on what? Where are they doing this? Where? Yeah, on your body. On your hands. Just on your hand? Yeah. Did it leave a mark? Oh, yeah. Was it a point of pride or were you embarrassed by it? Pride? Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, look at this, guys. I was cool. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think it was even even thought of. I mean, the, the guys you hung around with would always kind of, well, I wonder if I'm going to get it, that kind of thing. But I think every one of us got it. The girls, too? No, no, n not that they ever said. They were sent up to the principal's office, but no one really knew if they got the strap or not. It sounds like a pretty rough school where everyone's getting a strap every day. Not every day, but it would, I mean, there was not just our school, there was quite a few around. Was it? church involved in the school? Did you have to go to church every so yep. often in school? Yep, on holy days and that sort of thing. Confession, they would march us over in a line to the church, which was about a 
Oh, 20 minute walk. You think the, the uh, teachers confess that they use a strap on a kid? That was just accepted, I'm sure. So were you religious growing up, do you think? Yes. Church every... Good Friday and church every Sunday. Yeah. Holy days. But that didn't, doesn't really change how you turn out in the end because you're still being led around by your parents and your school's ideas. And with me, I uh, wasn't a happy camper. In grade nine, I was put in a school that I didn't want nothing to do with. Another Catholic school or? No, no. Herman Collegiate. It was brand new when I went there the first year. Why didn't you want to go to that school? Because I was, let's say, uh, like I love to do art. I love to do stuff like that with my hands and wood and stuff like that. And my parents signed me up for a commercial class. And so basically when I went, I just was not paying attention and um, I never ever got to a point where I could pass an exam. So. Why do you think that? I was rebelling. I didn't want that. I wanted to go to a tech school, but all the guys that went there was termed hoodlums because they wore their hair back, you know, slicked down. They call it a duck's butt. <laughs> what, greasers? No, no, no. Just the, they weren't cool. They had their cigarettes here, you know, and they're like Fonzie. John Travolta. Yeah. So second, I flunked the first year with flying colors, and the second year I flunked with flying colors. But you think this was just from lack of effort, not like any kind of dyslexia? No. I think I had the brains. You think? Well, as life went on, I guess I did. But I never thought about it then. But then when they offered to sign me up the third year, the principal had a meeting with my parents and me, and uh, he said to them, you know, right in front of me, he said, sending him back here is not doing any good for either one of us. So I would suggest that you take him out of school. And so they had no choice. Take you out of school to what? To finding a job in the neighborhood it. or whatever makes some money uh, when we got home. No summer school option? No, hell no, I'd have flunked that too. I was not, I guess if I look at it now, I made major mistakes, but um, you, you burn bridges, I guess. And then when I got home, they assured me that life at home is not going to be great unless I go out and get a job. And if I decide to leave the house, then I would have to pay the consequences for whatever occurred at that point. So 
I said, okay, that's fine. They, they gave me the summer to find a job, and they were thinking like a delivery boy or something like that. And I wasn't thinking like that. Well, I was always military-minded. So they said you're not coming back to school. You first thought, well, I'm going to do what? Oh, I knew what I was going to do because uh, in the grade nine, the two years that I was there, I joined the militia. And I was always happy to do things with the military. They had a precision squad that I joined, and there were about 10 of us. Yeah, only a little bit more depth than cadets. What would it have been called back then? Uh, militia. But it was... Put on through the school. Through the school. Yeah, but in the summertime, you could go to Ipperwash, and you would actually train with the new recruits. So you got a good taste of what the military life was going to be like, and... I, I thought it was a great thing. So dropping back to uh, what things happened at home, I had taken off one day with a friend and we went downtown to the post office and uh, we uh, signed up for the Canadian Army. They give us a choice what kind of outfit you wanted to go to and I chose the uh, the 2nd Canadian Guards, who were the ones that did the ceremonies up on Parliament Hill in the red jackets, you know, and the bare uh, skin hats and the sharp giant, uniforms. The giant two-foot hats that they wore, right? Like yeah, British ones. 20 pounders. So you you chose uh, this ceremonial guard, what, thinking you're on the easy street? Yeah, well, yeah, it looked like really neat, you know. And I had seen pictures of it before. And when I went to uh, Wolseley Barracks in London, where that's your first place, and from there you're told to go to whatever place, and they they arrange your transportation and everything. And I did the most of this without even telling my parents what I had done. So in the beginning, I couldn't get in. They wouldn't allow me in because of a physical problem with my weight. I was only 126 pounds. You had to be 135 pounds, something like that. So, How did you only weigh 120 pounds and 7 feet tall? You started what? How could you weigh so little? I don't know. I was always tiny as you were. Oh, of course. Yeah, you were. That's what I'm known as. So that's basically it. So I had, I think they gave me a month to put on five pounds, something like that. And I tried everything, and I just couldn't do it. But if I'm backing up, I'm saying that we were sitting at the table eating dinner one night and my dad came around the corner and he said what's this letter here he said department of defense i said oh wow he said wow what i said well i joined the army my mother just about passed out on the floor 
what what year was this? Oh, geez. Was there? 60, I was married in 66. I was in there for almost four years. So, I don't know, 60, 61, something like that. So, is there, is there world conflict right now? Has Korea ended by this point? Yeah. Yeah, all the wars were done. That's why... It was so easy to, to find work because all these places were gearing up to, instead of building army jeeps, they were building cars. But Korea was done by now? Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, Vietnam was maybe a year old when I was a year away from getting out, I think, something like that. Okay, so your mother found out joining the army yeah she wasn't happy but anyway it's what i wanted and uh well it seems like a reasonable choice if you're not going to school well then i'd be doing something that i was always i'm heavy into military history as you are even back then even back then did the did the sign up people at the military like offer you education at the same time was yes. that part of the deal yeah, you could do that. I didn't want that. I wanted hands-on. I wanted to do something that I could enjoy and something that I know I could live off of financially. Did you see yourself staying in country and just like being a career? I think so, yeah, because at that time there was, you know, no mention of the Canadian forces uh, going anywhere, but... I was in the 2nd Battalion, and the other battalion was the 1st Battalion, and they were just coming back from Germany when I joined. So they, they had a three-year posting over there. And everyone I talked to, they just loved it. I mean, you work through the day, but then you get your time off. And I think the toughest thing was when you leave home, get on the train, and you're all excited about doing something new, and uh, the uh, train lets you off, middle of winter, standing on a platform, blowing and snowing, and a couple other guys from, I think one was from Newfoundland, and the other guy was PEI, and I had this heck of a cold, ended up, you know, in the back of this truck, after we stood there waiting almost a half hour, an open-air truck come. We get in that, and we drive into the camp, and I'm froze, and I got the, the chills. We, in front of this building where we were going to be billeted, this corporal came out and started hollering at us and followed him down the hall, and he opened up this room and had mattresses and sheets and pillows so you were allowed one set of sheets one blanket one pillow and then he'd tell you what room you had to go into and there was a bunch of bunk beds you know in a room but not a big big room and so through the night I developed bronchial pneumonia that really threw me backwards because had I been well, I could have joined 
the next group that was going into basic training, but I had to go to the hospital. I was there for a couple of weeks. Well, you were quite the catch then for our military. Well, I guess. Now, I go back. How did you make weight? Oh, um, I was taking this super weight on that you could buy at the drugstore. But my dad gave me two rolls of uh, half dollars, I believe. We said, keep them in your pocket. He said, that'll put you up a little bit. So I still, um, the MO said to me, well, you've put on about three pounds, which tells us that you're in good shape physically. And after you get into training, you should be able to come along. So he says, I'm going to recommend that you're accepted. So. And then that guy got fired. I, found <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I don't think so. So anyway, that's the way it happened. When I got out of the hospital, there was another platoon that was half started. When you got out of the hospital, you were probably down another 10 pounds. Probably. Were, were people giving you grief about uh, your lack of uh, musculature, shall we say? No, I wasn't the only one. <laughs> I mean, there are guys that were 200 pounds, and they had the same problem as I would with 130. So that's all something that they know once you get in basic training. You eat what what they prescribe, you know, and everything is done according to a nutritionist and it will not before long I mean once you start your training which I had to stay in limbo until the next platoon was formed and that was probably four weeks or so all day long you would go over and clean windows in the administration building and wash floors and all that kind of stuff and during that time, I'm paying attention to the people around me who were in regular army and already been through basic training, and this was their their trade, whatever it was they were doing. And I uh, entered basic training, and I thought it was the worst thing I ever had to do in my life because of the discipline and you know the physical. Part of it was very difficult, but what the marching and uh, well, were you talking like actual physical training on a course every day? And are they making you do push-ups and all that jazz every day? Yeah, people yelling at you is it like the movies every day. Did you have Louis Louis Gossett Jr. making you do push-ups in the mud? <laughs> no, wasn't that kind of stuff. Did he say there was only two kinds of things that come out of Windsor? No. There was no harassment. But it, um, it gave me an awareness. And after I got out of, well, even during basic training, we'd have to get into the trucks and they'd take us way out into the bush. And we'd have to make what they call hoochies, where your living quarters that you made out of logs and signal wire to hold them together and that sort of thing and how to stay overnight and and so by looking around I'm seeing these drivers let us off 
and we go into the hardship and they sit in their truck with the motor running if it was cold and the heater on and they would always have snacks or sandwiches and I thought you know what out of everything that I see I love driving so I think that's what I want to do I'm going to join the transportation corps of the guards so after I got a out of basic training the army now becomes a job and everyone has a job and everyone has to be disciplined so that you're where you're supposed to be at the right time that sort of thing so the discipline changes from totally physical to applying for a job so you had to go to the company office and they had a bulletin board there same as you see in a factory that this job was open that job was open so I seen the transport job open so I applied for it nothing happened I did that about three or four times within the month. Well, what are you doing now as you're waiting to... I'm going with the crowd. Doing... Everyday stuff like training and, you know, weaponry and stuff like that. Where are you posted at this time? Uh, Petawawa. Oh, which is near Ottawa? No. It's, uh... It's north of Picton. And let's see. So near Ottawa. Not near Ottawa, no. Ottawa is more east. So it was on the Petawawa River, which would be right across from Quebec. You is know, there a I, concern in the uh, group at this point with the Cold War ramping up or anything like that? Is no. getting nervous? No talk about it? Oh, lots of talk about are people it. Getting, we like, train for it. Are people getting stationed to the radar uh, bases that we're building up around Canada? No. At that time, we had to deal with the FLQ. Oh, okay. And all our uh, arms and ammunition were all in bunkers. And so when the word came out that this had happened, all these guards had to go three or four to every side of the building to make sure that it was safe, eh? And that would be the first time you loaded live ammunition off the range. So anyway, from that point... But you weren't assigned to deal with that. Um, did you have to I was. I was in transport at that time. Oh, okay. So I did have to haul them around and bring them food and stuff like that. Were you armed at that time? No, no. Well, I wasn't armed until later. What was the rules of engagement for those guys who were having to do patrol for the FLQ? You had to be shot at before you could shoot. So it's basically, this is the way it is, but we were all, you know, the drivers all had radios in their vehicles, and we had a signal man that handled the radios. So they were checking in all the time, you know, checkpoint one, two, three, and so on. And in about 20 minutes, they would do the same thing. Any movement, do you see any lights or stuff like that. All right, so you finally got into transportation. Was there something you had to do to get that? 
seems yes. like you're having issues. Yeah, so I, like I said, I, I had applied four times and I got nowhere. But by this time, I learned who the clerk was. And I just was blown away because I got rejected again, you know. And I, I said to him, what is going, how come I can't get this job? He said, you don't have a grade 12. And I said, what do you mean? What do I need a grade 12 for? Well, he said, that's the stipulation. If you don't have a grade 12, you can't transfer into transport. And I said, oh my God, I don't have a grade 12 and I don't have time, you know, to take courses. I'm, I, I guess I'm dead in the water. And he said, not really. I said, what do you mean? He said, there's two openings right there on the board for uh, Batman. And as a Batman, you look after the officer's gear and everything that he wants you to do. And uh, he has his own quarters, even if he's married. And you go there all day and you work on his kit to make sure everything, the boots and the Sam Browns and everything are all spit and polished. And the better job you do, the better the, the officer likes it. So I said, and so where's the goodness in this? He said, because every uh, officer, captain and above, has to have a driver. So in order for you to take this job, you're going to have to take the driving course. So that got me into the field driving Jeeps. And that was about a six-month course. And after... So you did take on the thing of... Batman? Looking after uh, yes. an officer. Yes. Like in the movies uh, with the general, there's always, he's got like That's a, right, a an aide. Yeah. Yeah. And did you, was that easy to get? You could just get that? Well, I had to have an interview with the captain. And uh, I just told him straight out. I didn't lie to him. I said, this is why I'm here. And he said, it's not unusual. He said, usually that's what happens. And he says, if you do a good job for me, then I'll be good to you. So. What does the rest of the company think of? Oh, they don't. <laughs> we even had to sit at separate tables because the rest of the guys were down in the mouth about us, you know, being suck holes because we were Batman. And all this teasing about washing his underclothes and stuff like this and um, so that's the way they seen it so if we want to enjoy our meal we had to go to a separate table you couldn't get into the officer's mess if you were his aide no not unless you come under his you know his invite and it's a little different than what most people think because the the officers have to buy their own clothes. They got to buy their own sword. They have to buy their meals. So they, there's a lot to it, you know. And a lieutenant, he doesn't make enough money to do the same things. But uh, their goal is to get up in ranks. Same thing, do a good job, you get somewhere. So then after the, uh, after being his, uh, his man's man, <clears throat> I was bringing his kit right up to snuff. 
his boots were so shiny you could almost see your face in them. And one day I was in there because he had a parade to go to the next day and I had all his gear laid out on the bed. And he came over and he said to me, and one thing he never did was insist that I called him, you know, rank-wise and uh, very informal. So he said to me, hey, Bill. And I said, yeah, he said, I got some news for you you might really going to appreciate. I said, what's that? He said, I've got you signed up with a friend of mine who's the captain of the motor pool, and you're going to start a group one driver's course on Monday. And this was like a Thursday. And like I just about flipped. And so he said, so you're all done with me. He says, so all you got to do is report there. They'll know you're coming and uh, you'll start your group one. So that's what I did. And then from there on, if you want to go somewhere, you got to be willing to make the effort, right? Well, group one was a good thing, except you could only drive a Jeep and a three-quarter ton. Man, I wanted bigger and better things. So I decided that uh, I wanted that group too. Well, we were three quarters of the way through the group one, and this friend of mine, Wayne, and myself, we, uh, we were taken off the course and made instructors because they didn't have enough instructors. So we ended up finish, finishing it off that way, and we did everything that they wanted us to do and everything. I said, I need to get this group too, because every time you get a grouping, it increases your money. So a group two driver mechanic, and that was the other side of it is, you had to be a mechanic. So that was in your training during the courses. And that's the only really time that, you know, that you're not driving. Course came up and I applied for it and I had great marks on how clean I kept my Jeep and everything like that. And they, they would check you just sporadically, check out your vehicle. And I had my squeaky clean and shiny. That's where I get it today. I was put on a group two, so I got a pay increase. I had, uh, at the same time, there was a uh, an arm shoot, you know, like where you qualify, and they were looking for people to get um, high so that you could go to these meets. I was a pretty good shot, lousy in the beginning, but I got pretty good and uh, you earn your cross rifles and crown, which is the highest point you can go, but you also earn more money by doing these things. So that increased me too. Are you in the armed forces at that point? At that time? Yeah. Hmm. Two years maybe? Two years already. Yeah. What's going on in social life at this time? What's going um, on with the ladies? I had one girlfriend from Petawawa. She was nice, but nothing that made my bells ring. Uh, she couldn't make your bell ring? 
<laughs> what kind of what kind of information are you looking for? I'm just curious. Is this a weekend thing? You get away on weekends or could you get off base at We night? had full weekends and we had we had a job. We worked from eight o'clock to four. An hour for lunch. And then but how do you have time to uh go out and meet the ladies? Well there was none in Petawawa, you had to go to Pembroke. And then you would just go to the I've heard uh, stories about those Pembroke ladies. Yeah, some of them were true. I couldn't tell you. Yeah, it's just a job. You did whatever you had to do. Yeah, and then, how do you meet a girl when you're on the base the whole time? I imagine. Uh, not on the base all the time. You got nights out. I owned a car. So I would drive up there and I'd go to the Legion along with Wayne. And we met these middle aged people who had a daughter. And the daughter had a close girlfriend. So we would go out to these people's farm and we would party on the weekends and dance and have a great old time. Things were going real smooth until the rumor hit that we'd, there's a pretty strong chance that our battalion was gonna be shipped to Cyprus. Out of nowhere in the middle of the night, all the bells and whistles were going off to get us out of bed and we all went out in the hallway and they said, we're doing a procedure that's called a bug out. And when you hear all this, when you come out of your room, you're gonna be fully dressed, got your kit, and you're gonna go down and pick up your vehicle and you're gonna bring it down here in front of the quarters and the rifle companies will load up their people and away you're gonna go. And of course they would take questions and we were saying, well, where are we gonna go? And they said, that's, you're not gonna know that. We're not gonna tell you where you're gonna go. But they call it a bug out. So They said this is happening in the future. In the future. They're gonna do this at some point. So yeah. you can get your affairs in order kind of thing? Uh, just so as you get a heads up, you know, so sharpen up and whatever. Like if you if you let your kit go down a little bit, and then you'd want to go and purchase some some more T-shirts or whatever you needed. So this is where you told the lady friend you're uh, getting the high road. No, no, weren't allowed to do that. Oh well, it, what about it, your, I couldn't tell my family. What about your car? What do you what do you do with that? You say you got a car. Um, one of my buddies was on the uh, reserve side so that meant he stayed in Petawawa and they did all the stuff that they needed drivers and stuff for their own thing so then we would load up these people and we drove all the way to Trenton and when we got on the strip in Trenton we had to load the jeeps the trailers and all the equipment onto these uh, Hercules which they're still using today and um, they were a back load. So we'd load up everything, all set to go. And then the higher ups would come through screaming at you, get back to your trucks and load up and oh, all the way back to Petawawa. And then the next time they called and you had no idea when they were gonna do it, we had to go and we loaded it up. But this time 
They started the engines and we took off. We landed in Goose Bay, Labrador. They fed us. We unloaded and reloaded. They fed us and went right back, went back to Petawawa. And then the next time it happened was maybe two weeks later. We loaded up and we ended up in New Brunswick. Same deal, loaded up and back. So we thought, okay, this is just part of the training. This isn't going to happen. So it went a while where we didn't hear anything. And, and this is your buddy as your car this whole time? No. I'm worried about your car. No, no. What I looked after my car. But no, when, when, when we started these bug outs, after the second one, I arranged to have it put up in a barn, put it up on blocks. Oh, what kind of car was it? A 56. Uh, Victoria Ford. Beautiful little car. Does that got fins? No, 56, you know. You must know what they look like. The 56 Ford. Um, they had like a lightning streak of chrome going from the front to the back. It was a two-tone, blue and white. So anyway, I put it up on blocks. And geez, maybe after the last bug out, it wasn't, um, I don't, I couldn't say, but it wasn't long before, bang, this was it. And they, they announced, this is no training. No one is allowed to use the telephones, no letters going home. You don't mention anything to anybody. Are you thinking this is like a Russia thing at this point or a nuclear thing? No. Thinking this is like a no, we knew what was going on in Cyprus. It was a civil war, okay. the Greeks against the Turks. So we were able to stay that night, and we left, I think, at 5 o'clock the next morning in convoy. Low, oh, when we get on the tarmac in Trenton, we were trained on the Herc, and sitting there was a Yukon. We all, like... Wait a minute. The hurt, you load from the back. You drive the Jeep up, you pull the trailer up, you tie them down. The Yukon was a side load. Well, none of us had ever trained on those things. So instead of it taking us, you know, two hours, it probably took us three and a half because you got a jury rig around the corner to load them up. And it would take, uh, we're going to take six Jeeps, six trailers, and a whole uh, platoon of men and all their gear, and a crew of eight, I believe. And then, they, like, once you got everything loaded, they put these aluminum walls up after everything is tied down. It's just like you were on an uh, ordinary plane ride. They had stewardess, male and female. They gave us anything you wanted. They brought it around all the time. And it was uh, 14 hours in the air from Trenton to Marvel, France. And because we had UN uniforms and hats and everything, we weren't allowed to go to see anything outside the base. So that was it. And we had enough fuel, we could have made it easily, but their law, Military law says that they had to fill up. 
So then once they filled up, we were back and into the air and uh, heading for Cyprus. And I think it was about another two and a half hours. And they tried to prepare us by telling us what we were going to see when we landed. They said, when you land, you guys on this side, you're going to go out. You're going to have a shell in the breech of your weapon. And you're going to go down the ramp. And you go to your left. And you take up a fire position. And all this, our eyes and ears were just going, whoa. So as you unloaded, the whole thing was surrounded by, you know, their own weaponry. And then maybe five minutes later, these big buses and trucks pull up and one platoon by another jump in the back of these trucks. And every one, I think there was maybe two or three vehicles per station. And that meant that the whole battalion wasn't going to the same place. They had to go to different points. So I ended up into a pig farm, Onesia farm it was called, and it was taken over by the military while we needed the use. And they paid the farmers whatever they would make, you know, if it wasn't us bothering them. But he had about 60 uh, pigs in there, so they really couldn't do anything other than allow him to keep coming. So he came every morning and he did his thing. Was, was he a Greek? Ours were Greek, yeah. So you were with the Greek? Yeah. Even though you were officially neutral? Yes. And what was... You were there as part of the UN to... Oversee peacekeeping. Yes. So that one didn't interfere to the other because it was a military movement. And if there was some sort of conflict, you would get involved. Yes. And what was your rules of engagement inside of a... As a driver, you, as a driver, you have more leeway than the guys in the back. um, Because you see what's going on. When we first got to the camp, the first thing they did was have us sign for our vehicles. So you had to make sure that all the tools were there, all the spare parts, because remember what I said is that you had to be a mechanic as well as a driver, because when you're out in country that, you know, you've never been in before, and like transport mechanics would be probably halfway across the island, so... You had to know how to do it. So you sign off everything. And if there was a crescent wrench that was missing, then that guy, the Frenchman, we took over from the Van Dues, uh, he would have had to come up with that. So he had had to buy a new one and they'd take it out of his pay. But then as fast as all that is done, you go in front of the vehicle and that shows everyone that everyone's ready. And they said, okay, now what you're going to do is you're going to go with that uh, fellow beside you from the Van Du, and you're going to, uh, he's going to take you on his route that he does every day, every day. And what he does when he's there, what kind of thing you'll be doing, what, what will you be looking for. And each 
each one of you guys are going to have a radio man and that's it and we have outpost all through Cyprus from one coast to the other to give you a rough size I guess it was they told us it was about uh, 30 miles from one coast to the other we get in with them and we go on our route and he's got a map and he can't speak English half the time and but he's got a marker and he's showing you these roads and we're not talking pavement either and uh, then every village that he was responsible for, he would introduce me to the mayor of that little village. They call him a Muscar. And they show a lot of respect. So when you show up, they wanted you to come in and have a, a drink of ouzo or a coffee. And ouzo is a licorice tasting stuff. I think I had about nine or ten stops. So like, if you were to take everything they offered you, you'd never make it home. You had to learn how to be discreet. Anyway, any why you went there, if someone was sick, someone having a baby, then you would have to make arrangements that when this happened, that mayor could radio Nicosia's own headquarters and tell him what was going on. He needed a driver to take this guy to the hospital because he put an ax into his knee or this lady to the hospital, she's in labor. Because all along my route, you had to go through checkpoints, Greek and Turk. And we had to fly the flag. And then at night, the flag would be flown, but it had a spotlight shining up so that they could see we were UN. Did you get into a dicey situation? Yes. I think I had about a month to go, I thought. Uh, I inherited a new second lieutenant who thought he was just the king of the roost, and he knew the rules. So one night, the night picket driver came by and he woke me up and he said you they need you at uh, headquarters with your vehicle so I said okay I got up and I went over there and they introduced me to this guy who just thought he was something the um, officer of the day explained to me what was going on that they were they got a report that the Turks were moving and they could hear the trucks and the guys walking and you know, so they wanted us to go up there to confirm that. And I had to get the radio guy and confirm that that's what was happening. And should we panic or just their presence, you know, they would turn around and know that we knew they were moving. We got to the area. We reported to headquarters that we were there. And they said, okay, uh, let us know what you hear or what you see. So the second Louis looks over at me and he says, drive in there. We need to get a look. And I said, no. I said, the law states my mandate says that I have to do what I'm told and I can't get off a main road. And I thought he maybe wasn't told that. And he said, never mind that. I, I'm telling you that's an order. And I said, oh, okay. So I have a work order sheet and I take out the clipboard 
and I give it to him and I said just sign here that you're ordering me to go into this zone which we know there's troop movements and that puts you in the hot seat not me and he said you're the driver I'm telling you to go and I said so does this mean you're refusing to sign the work order yeah I said okay fine so I said my radio man his name was Zaitz and I said, hey, Zaitz, I said, call headquarters and tell them that we're leaving the road we're heading in. Well, he no sooner told them, and the, <laughs> the radio went nuts. Under no circumstances do you go off the road. Well, by then I was already maybe a car and a half in. And before long, there had to be 60, 70 weapons pointed at us. And so I just left the vehicle running, put it in neutral, and they grabbed the lieutenant, and they hauled him out. So I said to Zaitz, call headquarters and tell them what's going on. And so he did. And I'm going to say we were in that position for about 45 minutes. And Zaitz and I were sweating it because these guys, you can't understand them, and they're all got their weapons. And then a couple of them approached the Jeep because my weapon was on the um, console of the Jeep standing up. They wanted to see the weapon. And I just held my hand up and I said, no, I pushed my luck. I was sweating it. After about 45 minutes, we see the whole area lit up. And it's a helicopter. And Coming down the road is a whole division. We call them division, but they were like a um, convoy of maybe 10 armored cars with 30 caliber machine guns. As soon as that happened, and the radio guy said, okay, he said, you get out of there. And I said, well, to Zaitz, so ask him what we're supposed to do about the Louis. He's not with us. And they said, don't worry about it. Just get out get back to base. So I just turned around and back and back to base. The next morning when I was preparing to go out on my rounds, I stopped at company headquarters to pick him up. I go in and the clerk says, what are you, what are you looking for? I said, the Louis. I said, isn't he coming today? He told us that he was going to spend a couple days till he knew it. He said, no, don't be worried about him. He's gone. So they would put him in on the next plane, gone. So I think his career was just about shattered at that point. But that was, yeah. What was the action you saw with your mouth, though? Pardon? <laughs> what? what? You got your mouth into some action. Like how? Didn't you? What are we talking about? You had a rearrangement of your teeth? Oh, no. We don't need to talk about that. <laughs> what? <laughs> because, like, what do you want to know? My whole life story? I just... Yeah, the interesting bits. How do you know about it, then? Why would you ask me? <laughs> I don't remember. Something happened. Part, part of my job... Was drinking no 
No, not at all. Right. Part of my job, we would rotate each driver. And every night you had to drive for the MPs. So when there was a disturbance or a fight going on in one of the bars, we would drive the MPs there. And they go in and straighten it out. Maybe we had to call in a paddy wagon or something like that. I was just in the wrong place at the right time, I guess, and a chair hit me. That was it. You were the driver. Why were you in? Because they weren't coming out, and I wanted to know what was going on. So I just thought I'd go in and see, and one of them was just getting up off the floor, and he had his billy club out, and I said, oh, my God, before I could move, bang. Then all hell broke loose off of that because the MPs uh, called for backup and the whole place was taken out. That's about it. And that put you in uh, the hospital for a bit? No, not at all. No? No, uh, I don't know whether it was my radio man or what, or maybe the MP that we had to take to the hospital in Nicosia. Well, how many teeth did you lose? My, I didn't, <laughs> let's not talk about my teeth. <laughs> it's not important. All you need to know, it was a bamboo chair, and that's worse than hardwood. So that didn't take you out of action at all? No. Still reported duty the next day? You better believe it. I had to go to the MO. They said, okay, no problem. We'll put it down on your record. Are you bothered? No. Well, we'll send you to Dennis and see if they were, you know, you might have to get it. And I did. They had to pull out what was left. And then they offered me to get, you know, false teeth top. And I said, no, I didn't want to do that. I had talked to a few guys and they said, don't ever let them do that kind of thing. They're butchers. They're there to learn. Otherwise, they'd be in their own practice. So I didn't do anything till I come home. And I was only supposed to be in Cyprus for six months. So I had to stay for eight and a half because they didn't have enough driver mechanics to go around. So they made me stay. And when they, when the Cyprus thing came up, my uh, time of the army was up. So I got up that morning. This is before I went to Cyprus. I got up that morning and I was so happy. So I started to gather my kit up, put it, fold it up, put it in the kit bags, grab my weapon and I take off and I go over. No, I left it in the room. I went to breakfast and from breakfast, I went dental, physical, and then the last, after lunch, I took my kit bag and my weapon and I brought it over, but I didn't bring it in I, because I didn't know where or what they wanted me to do. So. You were interested in finishing, just getting out? Not at all. You said you were happy. I wanted to get out, yeah, yeah. because I had, I had planned on it, you know. After just a couple years in, 
Hmm. So you didn't no, want? No, 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 no. It's just when my time was up, is when they were going to try service, and I knew what try service meant. That meant all three. You know, the Air Force, Navy, and Army would all come into one. And that would mean there'd be more stupid rules and more dumbness and that. So I didn't want to sign up because I didn't want nothing to do with that. So anyway, when I was, um, well, payroll. I should have went to payroll first, but I didn't. I went last. And I'm walking down the road and this jeep pulls up behind me and i'm thinking to myself oh what is this and i knew he was right behind me he didn't try and go around and the sergeant gets out and he says tino he wasn't my sergeant just headquarters and i said yes he said get in the jeep what get in the jeep i get in the back seat of the jeep and away we go like hell pull up in front of the uh, company office. I, they march me in and uh, company commander, he's got this thing he calls a proclamation. And what it is, it's an order signed by the queen that I had to remain in service until my services were no longer needed. And I thought, oh my God. And you're standing at attention. And the sweat was just rolling off me, you know, thinking, oh, geez, what the heck? If I would have went to payroll, reverse my steps, I would have been out. Because once your payroll book is gone, it's gone. But see, there was a little bit of good stuff because when you go to a place other than in Canada, you get risk allowance. And then you get dis disembarkation allowance. And that's like when you come back and your, your role is done and that sort of thing. And uh, you got your ordinary pay. And I was getting paid for a uh, group three driver, which is equivalent to, would be a master corporal. So I had some good money in there, and you weren't allowed to take money other than what you're allotted while you're over there. You couldn't take your whole pay. So they kept it in your pay book. So when we come back home, I had that extra time in money. Disembarkation leave was a good chunk, and then I had 60 days of annual leave with pay. So I did okay. Got my car out and... That's it? You were done? Fixed it up. Well, this is when I came back, yeah. And um, I fell in love with your mother through the mail. What do you mean through the mail? Just by letters. So you already met her before you shipped out is what you said? We went out once. Back in... Before all the army business, that's no, what you're saying. After. after, during, during the well, you said you had a lady on the side in Pembroke. Oh, that was before Cyprus. That was before Janet. So, how did you meet her while you were still in the army? 
Well, she was your 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 uncle's what sister-in-law. She was Barb's sister. Yeah. So and your she was brothers. My, my brothers. Wife's sister. Sister. While I was in Cyprus, Gary suggested that um, she write me, and she did. And first they were, you know, just a letter about this and that, and then it grew, grew beyond that. So we both fell in love. So two brothers ended up married. Married two sisters. Two sisters. But where did Picton get involved here? Because that's part of the Army business too. Well, I was in uh, Canadian Guards 2nd Battalion uh, Transport. And then when they were gearing up to go to Cyprus, unknown to us, there was postings. And I got posted here to Picton into there, transport. There was an, uh, an Army base in operation in Picton. Yeah. Still at the time. Oh, yeah. And that's when you first saw that area. And how long were you stationed there? No more than four or five months. Uh, we trained. At some point, when you got back into civilian life and settled down and got married and had kids and everything, you decided to pick up everything and move six hours down the road back to Pickman. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. Well, I had a, I had a dream job at one time. They went out of business, so I ended up at Chrysler's on the assembly line. And I hated it with a passion. So after not quite a year, maybe maybe a year. Oh, well, if you back up a little bit, um, when that company closed, me and two other guys were the only three there, lift truck operators. And we we're loading up everything from the warehouse and all the machinery to go to uh, the heck was the name of that place? On the Ottawa River. Anyway, it was right on the Ottawa River, but your mom didn't want to go. And uh, they offered me a foreman's job. So I tried to explain to her, you know, that this is a dream job and it's something I love. But she, uh, she wasn't really game on it, so I didn't argue. I turned it down. Yeah, so anyway. I wonder what company that was. I do play to Canada. Glass. Any, do you, is that, was that operation near Ottawa still going, do you think? Yes, it is. So that would have been a good move. It would have been a great move because it was a depressed area. Eddie Match and um, Wonderbra were the only two companies there. And when they closed the mill down, they had houses there that were only two, three years old. And you could go there and scoop them up for like 10 grand, um, which was a hell of a buy. And the company was going to pay me a week's pay plus lodging and cover my food and everything and hers. But she didn't even want to do that. So I said, okay. But I said, if something comes up, he said, well, 
well, I appreciate it. I said, okay. And she was still under the premises that two plate would never shut down. But that ain't the way it went. So I was just dying to get out of Chrysler. So one night, uh, foreman came to me. I was supposed to be training a guy and he took him away right away and I just got ticked off. And I jumped out of the hole and the foreman come running. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting the hell out of here. And he said, you can't do that. He said, well, you watch me. And he called the gate. And I was walking through and the guard come out and he said, you Tino? I said, yeah. He said, I can't let you out. <laughs> I said, what do you mean you can't let me out? I'm leaving. So he said, well, if that's what you want to do. I said, that's what I'm doing. He said, okay. So now I put myself into a, a bit of a bind, but we had already, I had already investigated. I called Harley how Picton was and, you know, could they do, you know, could they use a cabinet maker or something like that? I had been doing that at night, learning from a, a German cabinet maker. So uh, after you were stationed there, you kind of always kept thinking about that location? Well, I had, what do you mean? Well, something made you keep going back to Picton as a, an idea. Oh, because I had a lot of friends in Picton. Oh. And I had a lot of friends in, um, Petawawa. So it was a halfway mark, you know, one weekend I could go here and next weekend. So you got fired out of Chrysler. No, I resigned. <laughs> you resigned? Yeah. And then uh, you needed something to do, so... Uh, and then I started working on Harley about housing and everything. And uh, I think yeah, we went on a, your mother and I, and Laurie and Wendy, we went on a trip in in my uh, camper van, and we did all over the place, and we ended up here, which I wanted to see what was out here, you know, like other than military, because they weren't here then. And I went and seen Harley and everything, and I came back to the campsite, and we were sitting around, and I said, your mother, I don't know if you're <laughs> going to like what I got to say, but I said, I don't have a job, and I know I can get another job in Windsor, but I'd rather not. And I said, what I really want to do is I want to move to uh, Picton. And she just looked at me like that. Well, if that's what you want to do, and she was pregnant for you eight months, eight and a half months. So she was very depressed at some point. And uh, we bought this property and uh, we bought two homes, my brother and I. And uh, well, them on the same acreage. The two brothers that married two sisters are now moving together. Yeah. To a new town. Yeah. And living beside each other. Yeah. 
and the day the night the day we arrived it was late it was in october and all the stuff was supposed to be hooked up we were just down there the weekend before to arrange that we'd have hydro and water and all that neat stuff i was the first one to reach the house and all the trenches were still open they hadn't done nothing it was hunting season and they all left so i had like 16 18 people to look after so we split into two groups and started unloading the u-hauls we had the largest u-hauls with the largest trailers it was a heck of a time why why did your brother want to come with you to Personal reasons. He was out of work at the same time? He quit same time, yep. Yep. So I told him where I was going. I said, if you want to come, you can come with us. Well, they were just chomping at the bit. Then they wanted their they wanted to come very badly. So we put the houses up for sale and mine was sold in three days and his took about 14 days. We were basically neighbors even there, eh? So I had the corner. Janet and Barb's uncle was in the middle, and Barb and Gary were next to them. And my brother Bob was on the next street. So that was it. You know, whenever I made up my mind to do something, I never backed up. two went into business together as well as being neighbors yeah that wasn't a good thing either i found out in the end but yeah we started a business we couldn't get anyone anyone to get us to work because they just didn't work well with outsiders at that time so we dug graves we did uh, lawns we had to borrow the money to get a lawn tractor. We had to build a shop. So we went through quite a bit of money. And then uh, things started to turn around. The business started to do well. We'd have five or six jobs on the go with building cabinets and installing them. And uh, I had this notion one day that uh, I think because what we would do is we'd get orders for certain things. And I thought it'd be much better if we had a store to display it in. So I did some negotiating with the uh, mall and managed to rent quite a big store. We put our product in there and plus I negotiated with Peterborough Lumber to get them to put cabinets and stuff uh, from Peterborough into our store on consignment. And then I found a guy in uh, Tweed. He did cedar furniture. Got him to put his stuff on consignment. And when that stuff come in the store, man, all live. We're running up to Tweed like at least once a week. That stuff just sold. And then on the weekends, when the tourists would come in, They'd see that furniture and go crazy over it, and they'd buy it. And then they would pay us to deliver it. 
to Toronto, Hamilton, all those areas. And we, so, geez, we made good money. Things were going really good. And then things were going too good. Things uh, weren't working out. Two brothers in business. And because I was the president of the company, I was able to do things that they couldn't do. And one of the things I could do was fold the company. And basically, that's what I did. We had, yeah, that's what I did. I closed it down. And we went for seven years without talking, living next door. Lived next door, and it was like a, another Cold War. It's like the Berlin Wall went up. Kind of that, yeah. Yeah. But the cousins would all talk with each other. And oh, the kids stayed close. And uh, we could go over there, and everything was friendly and everything. Yeah. But and there was this Cold War between the parents. Yeah. And, and we, we had this pool. It's not just normal parents. It's brothers and sisters. Yeah. Exactly. So, it, uh, I don't know, it was a pretty tough thing. So, I went on my own. He went to work for another contractor. And my business was really booming. And uh, your mother said to me one day, you know, she said, I'd feel a lot better if you had a job that actually we could count on X amount of dollars or we could do this and do that. So she said, you know, we're doing really good now, but it could just dry up. And then what would we do? I said, so what are you suggesting? And she said, well, maybe you could find something in town part time or something. I said, I don't think I'm going to do that. Well, what are you going to do? I said, I'll put my applications in to different places. So at the time, our friend Bev and Don, um, she was with the BIA in Picton. And this, uh, this guy named Al, he was HR manager at Campbell Soup. Campbell they, Soup at a mushroom farm. Mushroom farm in Picton. Yeah, in Wellington. And so uh, they got to talking, and Al said, we're looking for a weekend grower. And so do you know anyone like that? The specifications is it would be perfect if he had an agricultural background, minimum of grade 12, and um, easy to talk to, someone who be aggressive and get things done. And she said, well, I got just the guy. But he said, what do you mean just the guy? Well, he, he can do everything that you're talking, except he doesn't have grade 12. The grade 12 thing again. Yeah. Again, to bite me. So then, I don't know, everything just got quiet. And I did fill out an application. I brought it there. And I just kind of forgot about it and kept working. And then all of a sudden, I was home for lunch one day, and the phone rings. And it's Al Adams from the mushroom farm. And he said, Bill, have you found the job yet? And I said, 
no, I'm not really looking. He said, well, listen, he said, I got a job here I can put you in. I can start you on the weekend. I said, what's that? Doing what? Building mushroom trays. I said, no, no thanks. He said, what do you mean? I thought you were looking for a job. It pays good. No, I don't want to do that. Well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I don't know, but I don't want to do that. So he said, okay, hung up. Maybe a week later, I get another call. Al Adams again. I got a job. I think you, you would like this. What's that? Working in the plant, moving stuff around, some left truck work, stuff like that, washing down the floors. Nope. He said, well, I really don't know what I can do for you. And I said, well, that's fine. That's okay. Don't worry about it. So then I get another phone call. And he says, Bill, can you come in? I've got the farm manager here, Lester Brooks, the head grower, and HR, me. We're going to have this meeting. Well, I thought... Okay, this was just before lunch. So I said, okay, I'll be there. So I walked in there and introduced to everybody. And I had my work clothes on. I think it was Lester that said the first thing. Uh, he said, so I hear that you've been offered two or three jobs and you've turned them down. I said, yeah. He said, well, what are you looking for? I said, well... I heard that you had a weekend grower position that you might like, but I said, I don't fit the bill. And he said, why? Because you got a grade eight? And I said, that's right. So we talked for I don't know how long, and Kenny was the manager, Kenny Holmes, uh, who was the brother to Harley Holmes, which was one of the reasons we moved down here, right? Kenny said, well, you know what? He said, we can kind of fudge the books a little bit. But he said, it's only a weekend job anyway. So he said, I don't see why Campbell's would have an issue. And you'll be on an hourly rate. And uh, he said, the money's good. But he said, as long as you're part-time, you can't have any uh, benefits. I said, you know what, that'd be fine for me because I work at my business through the week and I could come here on the weekend. Yep. So I went there, started my first day, and Lester shows up and pats me on the back. He said, come on, we're starting your education. So he took me around the farm in each room, told me what had to be done and what should be done and the sequence that had to be done and then he took me to the other part of the farm when it was, where it was all put together on the line and put in the trays and everything. And then he took me outside to where it's all made in rows and like I blew me crazy. So we went back to his office. He bought what? me a coffee. And he said, you know what? He said, I think I want you to have this job. And I said, wow, that'd be really great, Lester. He said, yeah, but there's one little catch. I said, what's the catch? He says, I got a house, an old house, that needs a lot of repairs and a lot of work. And I thought, uh-oh, here it comes. 
And he says, but don't get me wrong. I don't want you to do it. I just want you to come every so often when I get so far, tell me what to do and how to do it. And he said, that's all I'm asking of you. So that was great for me. So I said, sure. And uh, I was weekend grower and the farm was never clean. It was always looking like a farm. So I had two guys on my crew and I had them clean up everything. So my growing part was limited anyway because I needed Lester every day to, you know, teach me. Make a long story short, he calls me, Kenny called me into his office, and then Lester comes in again, and then Al, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, I'm going for a walk. And uh, Kenny says, uh, well, I bet you're all nervous about why you're here. And I said, yeah. He said, well, you're here because we want you full-time. What? Yeah, full-time. All your benefits, you're, you're going to come off of hourly. You're going on a salary. We're going to give you a great uh, raise. And as you grow along through it, we'll talk more about it. And uh, went back to Lester's office, and he showed me my office. And, uh, geez, I was in heaven. I was just flying. So once I was on full-time, I had a foreman and three crew chiefs. One of the, like I had two of these laborers that did a lot of that work, but then uh, I needed more. So I had hiring authority going through Al and Lester. So I hired Tim and um, what's <laughs> um, what the hell Wendy says Herman. Oh, jeez, I didn't know where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> so I hired them and I put them to work and they did a great job. Uh, so then. Son-in-laws. Yes. So then uh, Lester put a lot of hours into me, and I caught on to it very, very quickly because I just loved it. It was so intriguing, and the money was super great, and the benefits. And uh, then we got another farm manager in, and he was a real pain not not a very nice guy at all. Wanted everyone to know how great he was. So because Lester being a head grower, he was the assistant manager. So that whenever Kenny left, he would have to take over running the plant, hey? Eh? So Lester ended up with a nervous breakdown. And so that meant he couldn't go to work. And Kenny and Al had went to his house and they had a long talk with him and the talk was what are we going to do like you're you're off we don't even know how long you're going to be off do we hire a grower is that possible and Lester apparently said well Bill is totally qualified 
He said, the only thing holding him back is his education. He says, you, you guys can handle that. And Kenny says, how do you suppose we handle it? And Lester said, well, don't talk about it. If no one talks about it, no one's going to know. They just assume that Campbell's policy is you had to be uh, at least a grade 12 in ag background. If no one talks about it, no one's going to question them. Well, Kenny said, good enough for me. No, it wasn't Kenny there. It was the new guy. Yeah, Kenny had already got transferred to the soup plant. So basically, they called me in and told me, now I'm responsible for the farm. Oh, my God. So anyway, I got a lot of things done, and production went up past Lester's production. Uh, we started leasing tractor trailers. Um, the business just started to boom. We had the head guy from the mushroom division come down from Toronto. He was amazed with the farm. And they put on two more rooms. So everything went really, really well. You developed some kind of technique in growing that was surpassing yeah. expectation. Yeah. That because was unique to, you, to whatever you were doing. Yeah, like Lester was a great grower. I mean, come on, he taught me. Um, but he didn't do much experimenting. Where I was the first grower to ever grow shiitake, not on an oak log. I grew them in the tunnels. All the uh, exotic mushrooms, I had two or three tunnels with uh, exotic mushrooms. And I had formulas, which you don't do overnight. You have to test. They eh? see, see what each one wants. So you had a good run? I had a great run. You got to be an executive without a grade 12? Yes. Yeah, I went to budget meetings in Toronto at the soup plant. I, um, I had to uh, evaluate my foreman. I had to evaluate the whole farm kind of deal. Um, I set up the company so as they finally bought into the idea of having their own export uh, for the mushrooms. Because as it was, we would send a truck down and all the buyers would walk the plank and see who had the best product. And then they offer you the price per pound. But you always got to keep in mind what the price per pound is one thing, but what is it to grow it? And so if we had our own produce company, we wouldn't have to listen to these guys. And they got a cheaper price. Then that truck had to come all the way back to us, and it went from number one quality to soup grade. So you lost every pound, you know, like that. So eventually they did. That was after I was there, but they did buy it. And it's still running today. Oh. And your sister got in the day that the farm took uh, possession from... Murray O'Neill from Lewington. He was a mushroom grower, had three farms. Campbell's left the... Campbell sold it to him. Yeah. yeah. 
And I had been all over the place for Campbell's. I went and did uh, consulting work in Quebec and uh, Pennsylvania. I went to Penn State University for two weeks or so. But when Campbell's left the company, left the left the, uh, the farm, that left you in limbo. It what? Left you in limbo a little. Well, bit. not really. They called me in, uh, the new owner and two partners. The owner didn't like me because he knew me. I gave uh, I gave a couple talks in Toronto at the uh, uh, agricultural conventions and that's where I first met him and he didn't like the way I presented things because he said there wasn't enough information. Well at Campbell's I had to take an oath that I wouldn't tell him tell anybody what the formula was right that'd be ridiculous and he caught me in the hallway and he was pumping me for these you know my growing procedures and I said no I, I'm sorry I can't do it. Well, he turns around the one to buy the farm. So I was coming from my car, come into the front, and they opened the door. In the office I went, and he said, basically, he said, you know what? He said, you know how to grow mushrooms. And he said, you know how to grow good mushrooms. And he said, you're probably got the best farm over all that I have. And one of the partners, he was a dentist, and uh, he said the same thing. He said, we don't have farms that have mushrooms that look this good, last as long as they do. So then Murray cuts in. He says, so, okay, cut to the chase. Here it is. You can stay here, work for me, and if everything goes good, you'll be just like things were before. But he said... Your second, if, if you do something that I don't approve of, and I don't approve of you doing anything without notifying me, because he was a grower also, other than a doctor. So he said, here's your choices. You stick with me, or you go with Campbell Soup uh, for your discharge, you know. What do you call it? Um... You know, when you're let go, you're terminated. Yeah. Laid off? Or... No. It's a package. Okay, yeah, get your package. Yeah, well, okay, that's what it was. And I said, I'll take the package. And he looked at me, and this Bill guy, he looked at me and said, what? I said, yeah. Uh, I was training a guy then to grow mushrooms. He, was, he had ag background, and he was a mechanic. So I posted a job and he took it, Kevin Cornier. And he was a good guy. He was learning really quickly. And uh, see, Murray lied to us because he told us he didn't plan on getting rid of anybody. We're all still going to have our jobs. That soon went to hell. Uh, John Chrysalin is the only one left. Everyone, everyone else, even my assistant, he fired after eight months. So... That's just the way it happened. So then Campbell's arranged. I had a great package. I mean, holy smokes. Um, I, on my package, you were covered as long as you went to school. If you went through college and then went into university, 
All your benefits and your tuition and everything was paid for by Campbell's. Well, benefits, not tuition. That's the benefits. Yeah. So I had a, well, they gave me a year off with pay and all my benefits, the whole nine yards. And um, I bought my boat at the boat show the year that I lost my job. Everything went really well. But as you're like uh, like a comedian who has his own show, he doesn't care if the show ends because he's still a comedian. He's got uh, can do comedy on the weekends. You were a contractor, so you you knew you had other trades to go back to. Exactly right. Yeah. So they sent me the, this woman who's in reverse of a headhunter. She's the one that looks for her work. And I was approached by this Vietnamese couple. She was the head of ag at uh, Montreal, whatever that university. All right, to continue in your field of growing. Yeah, well, she wanted me to, she actually came to the house, her and her husband, with my file about that thick. And it had all, every information from the day I started with Campbell's. And she said, you're the one we want. And I said, for what? She said, well, we're going to build a farm, and we're going to grow nothing but shiitake, but we don't have the farm. We got the property. It's all oak, so you would have to grow shiitake in, in the wild, but you have to build the farm so we could do exotics. And she says, we have no idea on what you would need as far as cooling and heating, so we would want you to work with the engineers as to what you want in the rooms and everything you need. And um, she said, uh, we're prepared to start in the spring. And we really want you to take it. So I said, how much is the pay? You were still in college. And she told me the amount, which was totally stupid, because we paid our temperature monitors more money than she was offering me. But her excuse was, but once we get it going, you can pretty well name your own price, and you will be traveling to Indonesia, China, Japan, all these places to you know, market our industry, which was going to be freeze-dried. So... And I said, no, I couldn't possibly do that. And I still have one of my children in, in school. And uh, she said, well, you you could come home on the weekends. I said, no, really, I'm not interested. So a week or two went by, and she called again. She said, we are prepared to have you come with your wife for a long weekend. And no expense to you. I'll cover your mileage. She said, uh, we really would love to have you. So we went up. and I mean, everything sounded great. And I mean, they he worked for Stats Canada. So they, they had the money. We went down there. They wined us and dined us. And I just bowed out of that. But back at the Cold War, back home... 
Yeah. Things finally warmed up. Sensibility. It did because my father was on his deathbed. My oldest brother had called and said that we'd have to get down and see him if we wanted to see him. He was on a respirator, but they could keep him alive until we got down there, and that would mean we'd have to go like the next day. So um, Gary didn't have a car that was good enough to, to take it on a trip like that. So your mother had just gotten her uh, Grand Prix then, you know, new in 80. One night I was walking out to the shop and I looked over at Gary's place and his shop lights were on. So I thought, you know what, I got to go over there. So I went over and he just about fainted when I walked into the door. And I said, now don't panic. I just want to run something by you. So I told him that dad, well, he knew that dad was dying, but I said, uh, you're welcome to come with us. And I said, uh, I know it's not going to be easy, but, you know, this has gone on long enough. And I think if we got together for a while, six hours, maybe the girls will even start talking. And basically, he agreed. And just then, Barb walks in the door, and she spun around and walked back out, and he hollered at her. she come back in, and he told her what was going on, and she agreed to come with us. So when we got down to the hospital, I called my mother and told her we were down. She said, oh, I'm so glad, but she said he's been in a coma for two weeks. Yeah, he doesn't talk. He doesn't do anything. The machine is keeping him alive. But it's good that you're able to see him. So she says, come to the house when you're done. I'll have Bob and Helen come over. So we went to the hospital and Janet went up to Dad's right side and I was beside her. And Barb and Gary same over there. And uh, man, this is honest to God's truth. If no one believes a miracle, this is what it was. And it was the Catholic uh, hospital as well. And Janet grabbed his hand, and he opened his eyes, and he said, Oh, he said, am I ever glad to see you guys. He said, Janet, I love that jacket. When I get out of here, and he was audible, you know. And she said before he went into coma, she'd have to listen right next to him. And he said, when I get out of here, I'm going to get me one of those. And he said, but I'm so happy to see you. And then Barb and Gary, he said, oh, he said, how did you just get here? Well, we all came down in my car. Oh, Janet's car. Oh, that's great. Janet got a new car? Yeah. And then boom, he was gone under again so we're all crying we come out of the hallway and the head uh, nun she come over and she said oh I'm, I'm glad that you guys came we said well we don't know what happened but we think we witnessed a miracle so we told her and she said that was a miracle that man's been dead and we told her he was audible, we could all hear everything. 
And she said, that's what it was. He was waiting for you guys to get back together. So he didn't want to die until you did that. So that was it. Well, and since you guys have uh, moved from that property and uh, the positive end of that story is you live beside each other still. <laughs> yeah, you might say that. In a, in a new area. After Janet died, I was alone there for a couple for a couple of years, and then I decided to go to Florida with Brian and Denise. And then uh, when we come home, um, I was feeling terrible. I drove from Brian's up here by myself. So I went to the doctor and they diagnosed me with four stage colon cancer. So I thought my life was done. But the good Lord helped me through it, and my kids, and the prayers, and here I am. I'm not 122 pounds no more. <laughs> <laughs> no, because all that extra poundage got you through the uh, stage four. I think so. So that's gone. That, that was just, you got through that lickety split. Yep. And now you have a nice excuse whenever I want you to carry some soil for me or something. 30 pounds. This is your max. <laughs> Due to your medical condition. <laughs> oh, okay. I think we did some business there. Well, I guess so. Do, do we feel good? Did we do it? Do you feel good about it? It made me cry. Other than that. Made you cry. Look. <laughs> Squeeze it harder. All right, well, I'm glad we got through it. Yeah. Uh, glad you feel good about it. Yeah, it was good. It was a, a lifetime in a short time. All right, we'll do, hey, we'll do it again very soon. Now, when can I expect my check? There you have it, my chat with my dad. We got a very special episode out of this, an STC Pod Father's Day special. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to let me know what you thought about this episode, be sure to follow me on Twitter at STC Pod. And don't forget, because it's Father's Day, uh, if you can, pick up the phone, give your father a call. Uh, if you see him in person, give him a hug, give him a card, do whatever, make your father feel special. Enjoy the day, if you're a father. Take some time for yourself. Smell the roses. It's your day. Enjoy it. So thanks again, everyone, for getting through this episode. And uh, we'll catch you next time on STC Pod. Thanks a lot, everyone.